The Ice Pod, a podcast about polar science and the people. Presented by Kirsten Werner from the International Coordination Office for Polar Prediction. From Bremen, Germany, hello and welcome to the iSpot, the podcast about polar science and the people. My name is Kirstin Werner and I'm working with the International Coordination Office for Polar Prediction. Our guest today is joining us from Norway. I'm very much looking forward to talking to Karin Strand, Vice President of Expeditions for the Norwegian Cruise Line and Coastal Ferry Service Hurtigruten. Hurtigruten is Norwegian and it means fast and rude. So Hurtigruten actually merged, I think in 2006, from two previous Norwegian operators to offer daily passenger ferry service. And also, I think, bringing the mail to the places along the Norwegian coast. Hurtigruten nowadays operates between Bergen and Kirkenes, which is close to the North Cape. They offer expeditions and cruises to the Arctic, for example, to Greenland and also to Antarctica, leaving from Ushuaia in Argentina. But Karin will talk about that more. Karin, I'm very happy to have you on this uh, show today. Before we speak about what a vice president of expeditions actually does, we would like to get to know you a little bit more. Hello to Norway. Hello, Germany, and um, very nice to be invited to this uh, to this ice podcast. I uh, feel very home when you are saying that this is called an ice podcast, Kirsten. So uh, it uh, <laughs> it resonates uh, with uh, not necessarily where I'm sitting now, but what um, what we do and what we have uh, as a legacy in in our company and even our country. So thank you so much for for that invitation. Very happy to be a part of it. And actually, the first time, Karin, we met, also it was online, yeah. uh, preparing this panel discussion for the Arctic Frontiers meeting, which was in January this year. And so I was just sitting at my home desk like I do now, but you were outside connecting via your phone from from the outside, taking a walk yeah. and uh, took me to the Really nice morning in Norway. Yeah. I remember that well. Oh, that's nice to hear. Because, yes, I was, um, <laughs> in order to, you know, through COVID, we've all been cooped inside uh, quite a yeah. lot. And and in order for 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 me to even stay sane <laughs> through COVID, yeah. I, I had to be outside. So I chose some of my meetings to be outside where I necessarily didn't have to have um, any paper trails or uh, needed to present myself, but just use my voice or, you know, whatever I needed to do is often to do it outside. So happy to, happy to have taken you on a little stroll there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so nature is a huge part of your life. If you would have about one minute to introduce yourself, what would you say? Oh, um, uh, maybe I, I should say that nature is have become my work. Little did I know that that was going to be like that, but that's how life, you, you stumble into that, but very, very happy about it. So taking people to uh, Arctic, Antarctic and everywhere in between uh, and focusing on nature as part of or as, as a great part of the experience is what I do and what I love and what I am also passionate about in as as a person. So I would say that 
that would be my one minute <laughs> introduction. Yes, yes. Originally, you studied law, right? Yes, exactly. And hence, maybe my first comment about little did I know, <laughs> little did I know at 19, when I had sort of already from 15 to 19, I had carved out my life. It was going to be like, you know, I had all the boxes ready about how it should mm -hmm. sort of happen. And at 23, everything just changed completely. And, and I had to realize that Little do you know at 19 what, what chances are coming, what people you will meet. So I met people that introduced me to Hurtarutten. And of course, I had known about this as, as part of our DNA in Norway. Remember, we've been operating since 1896. Uh, so we're more mm -hmm. than 120 years along the Norwegian coast. So of course, this was part of my legacy too. But I didn't think I was going to be you know, in the inner sanctum of it. I thought I was just going to watch yeah. the ships on the yeah. outside, but then that happened. So I started to work during the summers when I was studying. And then mm -hmm. one thing just took the other and they gave me chances and I started to re-examine my interest level. So I concluded my studies mm -hmm. over a slightly longer period than I had anticipated. And then I changed the course of my professional life, basically. Yeah, yeah. And is it still useful at some point to have this background with the law? Oh, oh yes. For, for your work today? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, of course, extremely rusty when it comes to method and so forth. But it, yeah. it has, I think, even if you are in any part of life, any part of, of your, your personal life or, or professional life, That is one of the studies maybe in the world that will always have relevance at some level. So, yeah, yeah. definitely. I see. So you were born in a fjord area in Norway. Yeah. So what was the first contact you had with the ocean? Do you remember that at all? I do. I do quite clearly because half of my family are fresh water and half oh. of my family is salt water. <laughs> so, so my, my mom's side have sea captains and fisheries and, and all of that. So it's very salt water in my, my mother's side. And she grew up at the coastline. Mm -hmm. Although I grew up in the inland, where so my father is a freshwater dude. <laughs> so we like a lake. Mm -hmm. uh, so we always had water very close, very close to water, very close to ice because it froze over every winter. So ice has been a fascination of mine since <laughs> I was very small. I grew up close to the Jostedals glacier. Mm -hmm. So I've been very close to the glacier landscape of Norway my entire life, part of my DNA. And then the coast comes in as, you know, that my mother's side. So, yeah, the coast mm -hmm. and the inland has been yeah. sort of 50-50. It's interesting. So you, you took, took up what your family, you know, has brought into, um, you took it up for your job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it wasn't even directly because my, not, none in my direct closest family are at sea. It's just been my grandfather, my uncle and so forth. But Dad, yeah, mm -hmm. Dad was at sea when he was very young, but that was only very, very brief. Uh, the 50s were, 
you know, when he was at sea to get more money to run the farm, basically. <laughs> so, ah, so that was why. Yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm the only one now. But you were grown up on a farm then, yeah? Correct. Yeah. With sheep. Yeah, there were sheep for about. Uh, well, <laughs> the, the the weird thing was that my dad actually uh, went into construction uh, quite early. And mom mm -hmm. ran the farm alone for quite a few oh. years, about 10, 15 years almost, completely alone. Dad was out on the big construction projects, water power plants mm -hmm. and so forth for, for the same period. And then they figured out that he wanted to start his own company. And mm -hmm. when he did uh, early 70s, first they got rid of the cattle and then... When I was about six, they got rid of the sheep, but we, we still have the farm and everything. So we just have someone yeah. else cutting the grass and stuff, but no animals anymore because now the, the construction company yeah. has grown. Yeah. yeah. So. And, and you said it already. So you, you um, worked as a student on, on these ships from Hortigruten. And yeah. you say, can you say again Hortigruten in Norwegian? Because yeah. I can't say it. No, it's, it's extremely difficult. I tell you, it's Hortigruten. So it's... <laughs> I know it's, it has this very weird way of, uh, so I think you say yeah. it very well, by the <laughs> way, Kirsten. <laughs> very German way, I guess. So the first contact with Hortigruten and the, being on, on the first cruise, how was it like? Can you tell a little from that experience? It was even, I mean, and I started like, you know, cleaning cabins and stuff when I was ah, 23. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, law studies and cleaning cabins. It kept me very grounded, I have to say. It was, I, I've, I've never been as strong, physically strong, as w those summers when yeah. I were working like that. It was amazing. And I remember just taking every break I could, or, you know, not going down to the crew mess, but actually going out on deck and, and look at the coastline as we were passing it. I, I fell in love with it from the very beginning. And the fact that the company was so open for people who wanted to advance, mm -hmm. it was very easy to be seen. If you had good morale and good working morale, mm -hmm. you were easily seen. And uh, you could start to, to elevate and, and come into uh, different positions. They were, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great company for a young person to start in. Because you were, you were seen not just as a okay. cog in a wheel, but I would say for the abilities you had and the mm -hmm. skills you had. Mm -hmm. So they were curious, they were asking, and yeah. So for me, it was a perfect place. Yeah. And where did that that first uh, cruise go? Oh, it was the traditional. It was the traditional at that time when I started yeah. in. I started in 1998, and it went up. The Norwegian coast from Bergen via Geiranger, which is you know one of the you know pinnacle fjords, uh, now mm -hmm. UNESCO World Heritage Site. It wasn't that at the time, mm -hmm. but it is now. And I remember it was the first summer we did a detour into Geiranger okay. because we that was not part of the normal route because we are also a commercial route for the mm -hmm. population along the coast. So it went up via. Trondheim and Helgeland and then Lofoten and then Westerolen up to Tromsø, North Cape, and then all the way east to Kirkenes, to the Russian border, mm -hmm. and then back down again, yeah. and all in 11 days. And then you started all over again. 
eventually you also had a first time in Antarctica. How was that? Oh, so then, yeah, so I, I, I kept doing this Norwegian coasting and I was super happy about that and thought this was, this is great. I like this seasonal. <laughs> then the company started to say, well, we would like to go down to the Chilean coast. We would like to go from Puerto Montt and then we hook Antarctica on top of it. It was sort of, it was the meaning was sort of to replicate what we did on the Norwegian coast, on the Chilean coast, yeah. and then sort of just hook Antarctica on top of it. And I remember actually the date. It was the 4th of January, 2003, where I came to Ushuaia and I saw one of our ships that I've never seen outside of the Norwegian coast and thinking, yeah. what are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we doing this? <laughs> anyway... Then I had gone from, from the cabins up to becoming a purser and mm -hmm. all clearest documentation and da, 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 being in charge of the reception and embarkation and all of that. And then they said, well, you know, we're going to clear out of Argentina and then you have the Drake passage to do all the clearance documents coming back in to Chile. And I'm like, Drake passage? What are they talking about? Anyway, <laughs> so, and then I thought, okay, blah, 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 snow and ice, seen that before, been there, done that. But then we crossed the, the Drake Passage, nothing out of the ordinary. We find it's an open stretch of water. And I thought, yeah, okay. But yeah. then we crossed in towards Half Moon Island uh, at the South Shetland Islands. And I was sold. I was starstruck. I understood that this is way bigger than myself or anything on this planet. And rest is history. It was just, I, I don't think... Anything has struck me that hard ever since. But that first meeting with, with a polar polar region. Mm -hmm. And since since then, I think you went back to Antarctica more than, I read somewhere, 150 times. Correct. Always going back. Always going back. And this season with, with COVID is the first season I haven't mm -hmm. gone back since to that 2002-2003 season. So, so basically in, in 17, 18, 18 years, I've, I've always gone back and not going back last season was like ripping off my arm. So we have just announced that we will start again this season with two ships and you can be sure mm -hmm. that I will be on one of them. It's, I'm not going to let go of one another season. Yeah. Karin brought some music, and uh, for those of you who know the iSport already, um, the way it works, so um, the music will be integrated on the podcast episode in Spotify, and we will also put them in, put the list in the show notes, so people can go there and check out the music. And for those of you who listen to us on Radio Weser TV, the radio station, you will just um, hear the song in a moment. And the first song Karin brought is um, by Lars Danielsson. I guess it's a Norwegian, Liberetto. Yeah, it's a Swedish. What is the background <laughs> of that song? Uh, it's a Swedish it one. Sweet. Okay, it, it's it's one of my dear friends. She's our chief scientist in in Hurtruten, and we share very much the same music taste, and especially the the. The jazz part of our music taste is very coinciding. And uh, she introduced this 
artist to me a few years ago mm-hmm. and he has stayed with me ever since. And when I'm in a particularly foul mood <laughs> and I need to sort of just rewind or, 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 or get, I always put uh, Lars uh, on. He always gets me in a better mood. Karin, you mentioned already you started as a student with Hurtigruten, starting as a cleaning staff, then you moved to stages like being a purser. Can you can you talk a little about um, the career you took uh, to become eventually the vice president of expeditions? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's funny. Like I said in the beginning, this company has always given me chances and always sort of moved mm-hmm. with me i could have either done it in three four different companies or i could have i i have been very fortunate to be able to do that in one company so chief purser was something i really liked because it was a lot of rules and regulations that i had to sort of maneuver myself through different countries so that fitted in mm-hmm. but then the outdoor started to because i looked at the guys who were and especially one of my mentors thomas hollick who is now in in a, in a, in a different company he was building up the the outdoors with hurtrutten at the time so he was operations manager for mm-hmm. for the expedition part and me and him we were always discussing and I, and and i felt like i was a, a part of it and i learned a lot and then he actually came to me at, at one point i think three years in and said Karen, why don't you think about becoming an expedition leader? I'm like, yeah, right. Okay, that's going to happen. Not. But started to think about it over a couple of other friends saying that, can you, why don't you just jump into it? And um, I was sort of just turned 30. So, you know, at that, that time, you more or less jump into anything. <laughs> you're, you're very adventurous yes. at that point and you're thinking, yeah, I have the life out of me. If this doesn't work out, I'll just, you know, figure out something else. And so I did. I started, he mentored me and I found that hmm, I like this too. <laughs> so I stayed then as an expedition leader for the Antarctic season because we our fleet was only deployed in Antarctica that we did nothing in the Arctic, mm-hmm. at least that I was part of we had some few trips going to greenland but with a subcharted part mm-hmm. so i kept doing that for a few years at the combination so expedition leader yeah. i have to i have to ask expedition leader what yeah. does that mean so you have a team of of um, guides on on the Correct. ship and you you're leading that team and you plan the expeditions going on landing sites or very good Kirsten knows her. Kirsten yeah. knows her stuff. Yeah. That's for sure. So yes, that's exactly what it is. So you plan the onboard educational program, and you also play. Uh, you also plan and execute the uh, land-based program, mm-hmm. which is mainly taking small zodiacs or expedition boats mm-hmm. and bringing people to a beach or to a you know to to a location where they either see wildlife or they see. Pure nature is really what we uh, specialize on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's what we do. I found the onboard program just as fascinating as the offboard program because I got to get to know a lot of natural science guides uh, and who have been doing this for a very long time. This was like a niche which mm-hmm. I I had no idea about. And then I was introduced to this. So there were ornithologists and there were glaciologists and geologists and marine mammal specialists. 
in mm-hmm. one big soup together and 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 all I was even you know. reading that on some of the ships um there are, there's a room with microscopes so people can go yeah and and look at stuff under the microscope yeah yeah absolutely and this is something that's been developed over the years so when when mm-hmm. I started we had nothing of that uh then yeah. we were very powerpoint lecture heavy and that has yeah. changed over the last decade, I have to say, where we would like to take our guests on a more hands-on journey. But it's not only that. It is the fact that we we have a, a, a newfound link between the science community and the expedition cruise community through first, it was citizen science. That was like mm-hmm. five, six years ago where that sort of took flight. And a great group of, of guides have been developing that uh, over the years. But now we're even moving one step further, which means that we are taking on larger projects with the science, mm-hmm. like ph- phytoplankton measuring of uh, salinity and temperature in the water and the inclusion of, of fresh water into the seawater uh, around the, the edge of the, uh, the, the glaciers and so forth. And having continuity in measurements is mm-hmm. hard for a research project, but because we are there anyway, we would like to yes. fuse that so that we take on guest scientists almost every voyage now. Yeah. So why yeah. we have a chief scientist in our company, in a cruise company right. that right. are organizing yeah. all of that. So, yeah, but this is, I Kirsten, this is Very actually, nice concept. yeah, it's, and it's developed and it's. Mm-hmm. Far from mm-hmm. finished, far from finished. Yeah. I think we talk about um, the connection between Hortigruten um, and science a bit more, but I want to I wanna know a bit more about your work. So you said you became an expedition leader. Yeah. What do you think, what experience is needed for um, becoming this? And then how did it bring you to the vice president of expedition eventually? Yeah. I think, first of all, you you need to have a good eye for logistics. So you need to mm-hmm. you need to put those bits together. I mean, and it sounds a bit boring, but it's <laughs> it's it's really necessary. Okay. Then you need to have a curiosity uh, to the mm-hmm. environment around you, and then you need to have a passion for the environment around you, because becoming an expedition leader is very often much more than a job. It is more like a lifestyle. Uh, you're away from your family a lot. It's to be educational to to great masses doesn't come without a price. It comes. You yeah. have to have a passion to be able to do that, and that's sort of what moved me from bit to bit. You know, when I said I what I saw first time when I saw Antarctica, I knew that somehow this would be part of my life. How? I didn't yeah. know at that time. But then it sort of gradually just moved into, okay, I was expedition for quite a few years, expedition leader, knowing, learning the craft properly, um, mm-hmm. then starting to staff also uh, all the teams around me. That also had happened gradually. Then we were taking another ship into the, to, we only were one ship for a long time. Then mm-hmm. we wanted to put another ship into it. And then they basically told me, well, we can't do that unless we have someone who knows the product shore side to prepare the second ship. So then I was dry docked, as I say, I came shore side, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. went back out a little bit as an EL, 
but started to see that the ambition of the company was more than just two ships. It was way more. That sort of catapulted everything into the knowledge I had built for the last 15 years onto mm -hmm. the VP expedition that I'm now. Yeah. So basically, you were in Antarctica. So there was one ship in Antarctica, and yeah. eventually the company wanted more. And then they needed one who had really experience with this um, to plan all the different expeditions Correct. down there. Yeah. And not only there, but also in Greenland and, and in Svalbard, because we started in Greenland already in 2007. So I'd been mm -hmm. part of that since the beginning. Then we okay. started in Svalbard in 2010. I was there from the beginning because that was my my pinnacle career as an EL, as an expedition leader. So then whenever we started with that one ship we had, wherever mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. went, wherever we broke in a new area at the time, I was there. <laughs> so, okay. okay. So that So how is such an expedition planned? I mean, especially if it's if it's um a land you have not or a region you you never uh, seen before expedition wise. And do you go there with a small team first and then you plan, okay, this is, these are the places we want to look at or how how is this? Sometimes it's both it's both. So, sometimes we can do it and sometimes we can't. Sometimes mm -hmm. you know <clears throat> going um, to to Svalbard and checking out is almost impossible so there we needed to take other experienced expedition staff with us on the okay. first trip. So mm -hmm. so if I hadn't been there like 95% of the team had meant that I just took my experience from the south uh, and said okay how different can this be? Not necessarily yeah. that different. Try to adapt, be open. And uh, I think the, the hardest bit of, you know, between the two poles were the um, polar bear issue. I mean, I mean, the fact that you mm -hmm. had to arrange, plan, execute the land or the activities shoreside with that in mind, yeah. which we didn't have in the south. So that was a learning curve, which was very steep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I had amazing team members that had done it for such a long time. So... And I'm a pretty fast learner, so it was right time, you know, to take on, uh, take on that. Then other times, destinations are a little bit more accessible, and we can go there beforehand, and we can scout it out, and then we do it. But um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. going to Northeast Greenland National Park is, is relatively hard to scout. <laughs> yeah. If you had a job description <laughs> for this, uh, the work you do at, at the moment as vice president of expeditions, what would that be? Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure if it, it sort of changes from month to month, <laughs> but it is overseeing. Okay. I would say it, it's overseeing mm -hmm. the fleet of six ships now and the onshore program and the educational program on on board and being basically responsible for it, for, for all of it. But naturally, of course, it's not something I can do alone. So I, I have a fantastic team around me. Some has been with us mm -hmm. ever since we started in 2002. And some has come along the way. And I think I would say that that is what this is all about. Yeah. Everything mm -hmm. from equipment to people to helping out with permits. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a tapestry. Okay, but even though it's it's more on the management side now, as I understand, you you're still at sea. I mean, if we wouldn't have any COVID, you would have been at sea most of the year. Or yeah. well, yeah, I would say that I'm I'm at 
at sea somewhere between three to four months a year. Okay. So yeah. I, I I have to have a little larger portion of, of uh, land-based now than I used to be. But uh, I, I was at sea six to seven months every year when I was expedition leading. And now I'm down to around four. So I'm, I'm still quite a bit. I've, I've just come back from Svalbard, by the way. So it's... Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still possible to to have you on board, yes, yes. to meet you, yes, booking an expedition and meeting you then. Yes, yeah. yes it is. Karin, you brought another song. Um, sisters are doing it for themselves. Eurythmics were big in the 80s. And I think that particular song resonates to me when I feel the world is unfair and, uh, you know, uh, women's rights are not being well respected or you know I, I feel in in a particular mode of uh you know bare knuckle fighting kind of thing for 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 our rights and then this song always comes into me and and women's rights are something that I care very much about so so I think that um, that gives me some energy to to keep uh focused uh, on that has this ever been an issue in your in your work on the ship or on the company? How's the portion um, of women and men working on the ship? Well, I mean, I would say maybe yes and no at the same time, almost. Mm -hmm. From an expedition leader point of view, in the beginning, at least when I started, we were not that many women expedition leaders. Mm -hmm. It was mostly men. But uh, I, I never felt that I was disregarded or, or, or not taken seriously in any way. That has been good uh, all the time. But of course, um, the lack of having that diversity was quite significant. So in, in my time of being able now to do the recruitments, we are very aware of diversity mm -hmm. being good for everyone. And it's even very good business to to be yeah. diverse. So our expedition leaders, oh, there's 50% women, 50% men. And at one point, we were 100% women. Wow. So from 2007 up till 2015, we were two women that were expedition. There one German, yeah. one Norwegian. And um, I feel actually quite proud about that, that we've been able to keep that statistics so well in, in Hustruten expeditions. Yeah. Okay, so let's listen to Sisters are doing it for themselves, Eurythmics. Karin, I, I looked at the Hurtigruten website and I found um, some statements that lead us into the main topic for, for this um, podcast episode. So one was uh, saying cruising season starts when it's possible to navigate through the ice just before the Antarctic summer. First sailings happen late October, while the last expedition usually takes place in March. That's one. And then also it said each voyage is unique and our schedule is dictated by the elements. <laughs> Although landing sites are always carefully planned in advance, our itineraries are only indicative of your voyage. So I understand You need, especially going to Antarctica with the extreme conditions, weather, sea ice, and the ocean as well. So you need to be flexible in the expedition planning, right? Yes, very much so. It's very inhospitable, if we should say that, in, in a way that mm -hmm. it doesn't sound daunting or um, totally unwelcoming. But 
we have to move with the weather. We have to move with the ice. And two very important elements in this is wind and current. Those things will definitely change our plans. Sometimes we can see it over the forecast we we see a few days before, or we see it only a few hours before, because mm-hmm. current and ice can be quite interesting phenomena in the way that it moves ice both to tidal uh, current, but also polar currents that are meeting each other in a, like, almost like in a whirlpool. And there is no way you are able to look at any weather forecast and saying that, oh yeah, so this ice will move in this direction and this will move in that direction. You actually need to be on site. So we have okay. so many grades of planning. It's the overarching and then the the thing you actually just have to see with your eye right there and then. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we go from the long term to the short term. So an expedition, I mean, you have a schedule and you need, uh, because you are a company, you need to, (laughs) you know, you have passengers, passengers book the, the tour. If I would be a passenger, you know, I want to go with you to Antarctica um, and and there are dates. You probably put this on the you know on the website. I could book that. How reliable are the? It will happen. The expedition will happen on these dates, and we will go there. How how certain is that? Or can this change because of any forecast? You know um, that is saying okay, this month will be awful in Antarctica. Yeah. No. So so it's, it's a good question because we have sort of made this based on statistics that we have seen over mm-hmm. many, many years. So the reliability of us being able to conduct an expedition in late October, November, December, and until mid-March is quite reliable. It means that there is mm-hmm. uh, more than a 90, 95% chance that this will go ahead. And in, in, in all of my time, I don't think we've had any expedition that we haven't done in, in a way that we have been in the area, yes, we might have to have changed the landing sites or the area we have been conducting our landings, but we've always been able to come down across the Drake and start the expedition and then mm-hmm. take it from there. Yeah. So that that we have reliable mm-hmm. data on to be able to to say that that is that is feasible. Yeah, yeah. And could it still happen that I mean uh, you leave port from Ushuaia that um, because of some weather conditions the next week or so the captain says we're not going to leave today. We need to wait three more days because uh, then the weather will calm down. Actually, never in that time aspect. But what we have done is that we have, for example, because what happens is that the the, the weathers, you know, with a ship, you can actually sort of make a, a route. You can avoid the worst eye of the storm, so to speak, by either holding back or going faster. So you and, and there's normally an epicenter in, for example, on the Drake Passage, which is a 60 uh, or 36 hour crossing, which says, okay, no, this, the epicenter is moving quickly. It's got 12 hours, uh, before it has passed our course. So we hold Mm -hmm. back about 12 Mm -hmm. hours or 
we speed up and we can make it south of the eye of the storm so that we are in sheltered waters before. So we have done both uh, many, many times, Um, but we've never stayed like three days Uh or more than more than 24 hours um, before we have moved on our ships and generally the fleet that goes down to Antarctica, if we are talking about that area, in particular, they are well suited mm-hmm. and well uh, designed mm-hmm. to be able to take quite a bit some weather. It might not be super pleasant, mm-hmm. but stabilizers and and a lot of new technology is is part of making that that mm-hmm. crossing a lot mm-hmm. easier than let's say a hundred years ago, when that would have been quite uh, quite a different yes. different journey. So that you don't have a hundred of seasick passengers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we, 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 we do. Oh, we do. Oh, we do. Or there are, you know, you're coming. And, the, you know, I totally see it. You're coming off a flight. Yeah. You've been, you know, you've been, tra- if you come from Europe, you've been traveling half across the world mm-hmm. and um, you're, you're maybe even a little bit jet lagged. And then suddenly you're, you're on a 36 hour voyage across one of the harshest pieces of, of, of sea yeah. in the world uh, before you move. But what we sort of tell our guests is that, you know what, getting to Antarctica, look at all the pioneers that had to come down there. You have to suffer a little bit to get down there. Do you enjoy it? Yes. Yes. You enjoy it even more. And you, you know, you, uh, it's like, you know, when you go up to a mountaintop and you're really tired those last 200 meters and think, I cannot do it no more. It's a little bit the same. You are sort of doing a, a, a little bit of a Mount Everest expedition just in your own human being and saying, okay, I can. Yeah. Because being seasick is not very pleasant. Sometimes you just feel really I awful. Can, and yeah. Yes. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then it just sort of reveals itself yes. as soon as you come in within smoother waters and you see this ice landscape and it's just ice, ice, ice as long as you can see. Everything is forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, that's so worthwhile. Yeah. I wonder, you probably have consultations also with the captain and, and um, their crew on the bridge. So do you know what what products, what forecasting the captain looks at uh, in order to make decision? I think uh, their own eye is probably <laughs> one very important part of it, but they probably also use some some forecasting, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's super important. Mm-hmm. We start actually, we, we use indic- in, indication like windy. Windy has become a very important part of, of our forecasting. We know that it it gives us a prognosis mm-hmm. and, and it could be variable, but it gives us an indication. And that's really all we need because we are using both our our eyes uh, when we are there, but it it has proven very efficient and and uh, also ear ear dot the Norwegian one, yeah, yeah, the Norwegian one. We as Norwegians we use it quite a lot. Uh, I have too. planned, <laughs> yeah, uh, I have planned many a landing based on progress on or doing projections of uh, and it, and it has been a, a good tool. So, so it's good also also in Antarctica. Io.no is also yes. good for Antarctica, yes. yeah? It is. It is. Mm-hmm. It's good for Antarctica. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, but you have to sort of, it's not a lot of measure points. Uh, you know, you have a few in the, in the ah. peninsula. So you will have to sort of go with a projection based on some key points. And there could be like mm -hmm. 40, 50, 60 miles between them. But overall, when you take one measure point north of the point you're supposed to be and one mm -hmm. south of the point you're supposed to be, then you get a good traction of what you're at, where you're actually going to be. So, mm -hmm. so you mm -hmm. just, you sort of just compile uh, a few yeah. measure yeah. points be because they're a bit far away from each other. And this is what the captain does on the bridge, looking at these um, separate measure points and then make some assumptions. Yeah. Together with Windy. Yes. Ah, yeah. okay. Together okay. with Windy. Mm -hmm. And so we use both of mm -hmm. them and we sort of look at, uh, okay, um, this, they are, they are consistent mm -hmm. uh, or one or the other uh, has a, a deviation. Yeah. And then we sort of always go with the worst case scenario. Okay. So whoever is giving us the worst, <laughs> the, the worst prediction yes. is the one that we believe. And then we believe. And then if it's not, then we just get positively surprised yes. but we we plan for the worst of the two that's an interesting approach yeah and makes totally sense yeah. and uh yeah you may be lucky <laughs> and get out of this without any issues then yeah yeah, yeah. Because then we have a threshold, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we have a threshold for our operations. We know that, for example, we can operate our boats within this and this wind mm -hmm. uh, strength, this and this wind direction. We know the ship can give lee for those boats as they are docked mm -hmm. alongside in almost any direction. We know that prevailing sea state like uh, swell, mm -hmm. Uh, sea swell, which is very hard to protect oneself for, yeah. is, is maybe our biggest enemy apart from surface wind because you can't protect. It's just, you know, it just goes up and mm -hmm. down like this, you mm -hmm. know, next to the. So if you need to go into a boat and it goes yes. like this next to the ship side, uh, we, we have to take that into consideration as well. But that is based on your location because those swells are not present inside deep bays mm -hmm. with maybe more than three direction protection. Even if there's an island in between, that also takes off a lot of that, oh, okay. uh, that prevailing mm -hmm. sea state. Mm -hmm. So you, so I think my, my, since I started becoming an EL is looking at, looking at swell on a beach, looking at swell next to the ship um, looking at islands and cloud patterns, mm -hmm. whether is that cloud pattern looking terribly nasty? Mm -hmm. Is it going to come in an hour? Is it going to come in two hours? Do we think we can manage to get people shoreside before we have to take them back on board before the, <laughs> the storm comes? If there is anything I've done more than sitting next to a computer when I was active as an EL yeah. was exactly that, was interpret the conditions mm -hmm. around us and what parameters I needed to have to be able to get people shoreside. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. And do you also look at some sea ice forecast? Um, no, in, in Antarctica, we do, we do that, especially in the beginning of the season. We look at that and we also use quite a lot of the, the METS ice forecast because they do both Antarctic and Met Arctic. Norway's uh, ice forecast? Yeah. Met Norway's mm -hmm. ice forecast. Mm -hmm. Um 
we use them because they're easy accessible, but we are now looking more at polar predictions that we're getting from sources like yours. But we, we're still very in the infancy of uh, satellite data because the, the bandwidth on board is relatively low. Mm -hmm. So getting high-res ice sat data is also very different. But polar view, we use polar mm -hmm. view quite a mm -hmm. bit, which is very important for us. So the combination between those two is what we have used more. But we are now trying to expand our sources and use of sources. Mm -hmm. And that actually happened when we came into the pandemic, where we started to say, okay, now we actually have time to maybe, you know, research some more resources. When you and I had our meeting in January, mm -hmm. we were already started to look at more resources and we will, at this Antarctic season, start to um, use some of them as well. Exactly. We, we talk a bit a little bit further on on that topic and also what would be yep. nice uh, nice to have if uh, you could have a wish and um, before that you brought sting message in a bottle you like that song very much you said before right yeah I I like that song I think it's because he re that song reminds me of my sister and I'm very close to my sister and and she has been a sting fan for as long as I can remember basically and when she introduced me to to him, I remember, and she's even younger than me. One of those songs that have sort of stuck with me for for always is, has been "Message in a Bottle," and uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a fond fond memory of my sister, which I'm yeah. very close to. Yeah. Okay. Message in a bottle. Karin, we, we talked about the, the forecasting products that are used on the bridge, and also that you are using to plan your expeditions. And we talked also about sea ice forecast. Um, I actually bring a question from the guests of one previous episode. They are working on an app to use on a mobile phone for sea ice forecast. Their question actually was, in addition to, for example, satellite uh, photos um, and the forecast of, of sea ice, what would you wish for if you had this kind of app on your mobile phone? Um, I would wish that it would work with low bandwidth. <laughs> that's, that's a precondition. That's a condition yeah. for, for this yeah. app. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And then ice predictions would be very, very useful, but wind prediction and fog predictions would be very, very useful for, because those are maybe, um, depending on, on which polar region you're in. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. wind, I, I have to say, is our, our biggest uh, enemy for a, a safe operation. So if there's mm -hmm. anything I could wish for, it is uh, accurate wind uh, predictions for, for an app like that. You know, if, if, if you have the wish box out, you know, you would mm -hmm. like to just yeah. have that combination of ice and wind and, and current, which you now have to find in three different sources or you might have to even mm -hmm. look to three or four different sources to find it. If, if that could be sort of put into a, a more comprehensive one tool, one shop stop or one stop shop, that would be absolutely amazing. And I, I do understand that that is, is quite difficult, but that is, I think is the wish list for any, any uh, polar operator having that, uh, in it itself yeah 
So, so basically, I think it's a good one because this uh, podcast is also, you know, in order to, to enable the dialogue between users of forecasts and those uh, who provide the forecast or maybe, um, you know, some intermediate um, services who offer exactly these kind of um, combined forecast products where they put together different um, data and uh, you can look at that at low bandwidth yeah. um, very easily. So, yeah, so that that would be something. So ice, wind and currents, for example. Ice, could be ice wind one. and current, yeah, would be, uh, I mean, with those three uh, elements, we would come really, really far in Mm-hmm. having an accurate prediction on the uh, prevailing conditions at the time. And, you know, and I, I suppose that precipitation and so forth is a relatively easy forecast to, to put. It's, um, and that is also useful, of course, but it wouldn't stop us in any way if we, if we didn't know mm-hmm. whether it was raining, snowing, or it was sunshine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but, but wind, fog, and ice would stop and would, to a certain degree, make it, it's those elements that we are afraid of makes it unsafe. Rain wouldn't, snow wouldn't, sunshine wouldn't make that um, problematic in any way. It would just be sort of a consequence which we could always deal with and and didn't take special precautions in any way. But uh, I guess that comes with the territory, I guess. So uh, precipitation is also something that, you know, on the wish list, but... Mm-hmm. And nice to have, not a need to have. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? Here comes a question from somebody who has no idea, <laughs> you know, navigating. But but uh, what do you do if all of a sudden there's a big chunk of fog around the ship? Yeah. Do you just uh, stop the, you know, <laughs> yeah, stop I- at that place and, and wait until it's gone? Or what do you do? Yeah, very good question, actually, Kirsten. And it is it's a little bit both. Sometimes... When we feel very uncertain about the conditions ahead of us, because mm-hmm. the ice chart that we get are normally history when, you know, when, when we have yeah. it in our hands. It's so yes. exactly. So unless we have a very strong ice going ship, if you have mm-hmm. a sort of a medium ice going ship, which is a lot of the fleet is, then we stop and we just return or or okay. we try okay. to find somewhere else to go we don't go into to ice uh, that way if we in the forecast have seen that okay we are meeting the belt the like the the, the heavy belt more or less at the place that it was supposed to be according to the chart mm-hmm. and we know mm-hmm. that it is very very open in the back we might slowly 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 go through it because we think oh. that this this will open up on the other end, but it all depends on the prediction we got. Because if there was a big amount of ice either to the left or to the right of that open area, mm-hmm. we would not go through. Because then we yeah. would say that could have moved closer and closed up a much, much larger area of ice. But if we know that there is mm-hmm. open far, 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 like let's say 15 nautical miles, we would say, okay. We can, mm-hmm. we can, we can take the chance, but that is the jungle you have to do. Yes, yes, that's that's the thing about making decisions. Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. yeah.
So the Polar Prediction Project is, is an initiative to, you know, support you Fantastic. for these uh, kind of decisions. And uh, so you mentioned before um, already um, the scientific exchange you were having or the exchange you have with the scientific community. Let's call it that way. And you, you said you have scientists on board and you have also ongoing collaborations with some kind of projects. Yes. Maybe you can briefly tell us about that. Yeah. So we have gone into a cooperation with the, uh, actually it's a PhD student in California at Scripps Institute about doing phytoplankton measurements in Antarctica. And we are doing the same in the Arctic with the uh, UNIS, uh, University mm -hmm. of uh, of Svalbard, where there are students every summer that are trying to get uh, phytoplankton measurements done on the east side of Svalbard, which is very difficult to get to. So we've done that over, I think it's two seasons, and we, we want to continue that work. So you, you have some nets yep. on the ship, and yep. you collect phytoplankton Correct. for them? Yeah. Correct. So we, we make this kind of a preliminary crane, which we then mm -hmm. at one of our bunker gates or one of our doors that opens up and then it's lowered into the water and this uh, and then it's taken up and the student then cultivates those samples and then a new student comes on the next trip and a new student comes on another trip so several students are able to be able to to collect this during the summer uh, so um, I think at least a third so they join the trips yep they join the trips yeah. Ah, okay. So yep. they are with you on board and they are doing their, their collections, their sampling of the water. Column. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and we would like to do this much more, even with geological studies. Also, we have one glaciologist at, uh, she is now permanently employed actually in, in, in Hörstrutten mm -hmm. as a glaciologist. She's conducting a study on the, um, life around the edge of the glaciers mm -hmm. to say something about what and when that establishes itself and what kind of plants actually grow when the glaciers retreat. Mm -hmm. And it will say something about the time and so forth. So next summer, she's going to try to, and actually together with our guests actually, to come up to some of the glacier edges in Svalbard and take some samples there, come oh. back to the university and be able to cultivate those samples and say something about yeah. the glaciers and, and the flora that actually grows next to the glacier. Yeah. So passengers can really be part of a scientific process there. Yeah. Absolutely. So when the phytoplankton students are, are, are trying to get that, because they, with that much water in the net, it's actually quite heavy to get that yes. net back up more. Yeah. So then we have guests with us who are sort of standing Good. in the line behind and they're <laughs> dragging the net in. And Good. Trying to, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and they're part of looking. So that we take extra samples from the water column in mm -hmm. order for, so that we use on board. And then, mm -hmm. uh, so guests can see come back with a deeper understanding and then they have their separate samples that goes back to the university. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's actually a great way of um, doing outreach. Yes, Very nice. absolutely. Yeah. We would like yeah. to do much, much more of that. And that's why our science program is, is going to be very extensive yeah. now coming out of COVID and uh, being able to cultivate it much more. Yeah. I think for the coming Antarctic season, 
we since we're only doing two ships, we were thinking we were planning to have three. We have to redirect some of our project mm-hmm. onto to those two ships, and there will be scientists on board every single voyage in the in the coming on mm-hmm. Antarctic season. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was wondering, Karin, uh, you, you contacted, contacted me uh, through the year also about some devices you can put on the ship to measure um, atmospheric conditions and so on. Have you, have you been successful with that? Because I think that would be a nice thing because ships are going there anyway, a little bit like the planes were taking these AMDA uh, these data that could also be done by ships. Is that something you consider with a company absolutely yeah absolutely and now that we know we're going to start operating again before august we had a little bit of an issue committing to to a time frame for our dear collaborators on the equipment but now yeah. that we know that we will starting and that the arctic season will hopefully be more like normal and then we start we would like to rekindle that again and start looking at uh, what equipment they would like to have on board and how we can install it and so forth. And that, that's a fairly easy thing for us to do mm-hmm. is to have equipment on board that would measure, unless they're like 15 feet long and, or like, like really gigantic, then, yeah. then yeah. we might have to do some adjustments. But, but uh, measured, normal measured devices is, is not difficult for us to do and very welcome, mm-hmm. which we would really like to be part of. It's, uh, It's, it's, it's not, not very, and it would be, very, it's a win-win for us as well to yeah. be able to help out. We have the continuity and we would be able to communicate this to, to the wider science community that this is an opportunity. And would that mean that the scientists would need to be on board or could that also be automated uh, measurement devices that, you know, the crew runs on themselves yeah. and then the data goes into the global telecommunication yeah. system of the WMO and uh, feeds into, you know, the forecast eventually. Forecast. Yeah, exactly. No, it's no, no problem either way. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, if we could, sometimes uh, um, projects would like to have um, presence uh, mm-hmm. or physical presence of someone. Mm-hmm. Other times it's whole, wholly automatic. Like, for example, the ferry box that we have on board, Ruel Amundsen, is a fully automatic part of it is fully automatic salinity temperature and so forth which is fed back to neva which is the uh, institute of water research in norway and we have actually had measurement equipment on board since the 1930s so mm-hmm. we have a very very good um, track of temperature measurements in in the ore and salinity and so forth on the Norwegian coast since the 1930s. And now since 2019, we also have it for Antarctic, Arctic, as well as we have this on Amundsen as well. It's a little bit of a bigger piece of equipment that, you know, we need to plan a little bit better to get on board, but it's absolutely feasible. And that also has a microplastic unit to it. So we Mm -hmm. can measure the level of microplastic in the areas we sail. Okay. Yeah. That's another very important thing to do these days. Yeah. So, The spectrum is wide, but yeah. I think weather data would be very, very uh, beneficial. It's one of the things that we have looked a lot into phytoplankton, a lot into marine mammal sightings. We looked mm-hmm. into, uh, as I said, the, the, the water column in, in particular. But weather data and collecting of weather data is an area we would like to go a lot more into now that we have the opportunity, you know, we made connection with, with you and, and, uh, and others so we can develop this more 
and either wholly automatic data, mm-hmm. semi-automatic mm-hmm. data, or or, or physical um, presence. So I think that is a great potential. Okay, so so this is basically an invitation to yes. the science community. <laughs> it is <laughs> to contact. Maybe you contact us at um, um, office at polarprediction.net, and we can then make the contact with um, to Karin. Um, and to see whether um, that could be something yes, absolutely. Um, to be done. Karin brought another last song, um, In Excess Mystify. What's about this song, Karin? Oh, this is, this is the, a blast from the past, let's say that. But it's an Australian group <laughs> that um, influenced my, my youth quite a bit. And when I was an exchange student in, in Brazil, I think it was in, in the late 80s, and my host family there in Brazil, uh, the son of the house, he loved this, uh, this group and he introduced me to an excess. And then, um, so that reminds me of sort of the time when I was 18, 19 and uh, young and carefree. Okay, Karin, before um, we close, I would like to um, give you some short either or <laughs> keywords okay. and you choose and you can explain a little why you choose. Arctic or Antarctica? Antarctica. <laughs> super hard. Because you've been there so much. Yeah, uh, super <laughs> hard and it's no slight to the Arctic. I love the Arctic as well. So it's, it's a very, very slim difference between the two. But I think Antarctica, because I think it's something about the first polar region you went to and, and um, it makes just this mm-hmm. very, very uh, strong impact on you. And then I think that it feels like a different planet. It just doesn't feel like Earth. I think that's the fascination of it. Yeah. Uh, midnight sun or polar lights? Midnight sun. I like the light. <laughs> and, and being in the south during the summer when it's all light and uh, coming back to Arctic when it's all light. I, yeah, I like the vitamin D yeah. that it brings. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there actually, have you been uh, to Antarctica in winter as well? No, no. And only like, you know, early autumn, you know, because that's what, mm-hmm. what March, uh, April is. But yeah. uh, but never been to Antarctica in the winter, so uh, yeah, yeah, that would be interesting actually. Yeah, sea ice or open ocean? Sea ice, yeah. I I just have a fascination for ice. I love ice. <laughs> yeah, you can walk on it. <laughs> you can walk yeah. on the ocean. You can walk on the ocean. <laughs> exactly. <It's>, yeah. <laughs> That's what my supervisor always said. You know, as long as you can walk on the ocean, as long as sea ice there. Exactly. Yes. As long as it is frozen, he said, yeah. Um, so bridge or mess room? Bridge. And maybe because that's, that's where it happens. That's where all the exciting decisions are taken. That's where the view of everything that you're supposed to be taken care of or, or even uh, all the exciting decisions are being taken right there, right then. So I think, yeah, yeah bridge, definitely. Yeah. And then I have a last one. Hurtig or Ruten? Oh, <laughs> um, maybe Hurtig, I think. Although I don't, I don't know if it's uh, the root. Proud of the legacy of the root, mm-hmm. definitely. But Hurtig, because I think it has potential in it. It has potential of expansion. It's just, uh, it's not one 
root of the coast that lives forever. This is more uh, the world is the canvas, I think. Yeah. I think that's why I, I choose Hörte. Yeah. Okay. So, Karin, thank you very much for being with me today. I could uh, move on <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> Likewise. But, uh, yeah, we all yeah. Have, have our uh, meetings and appointments, but it was so nice you telling us more about your work with uh, Hurtigruten and, um, yeah, about um, how Hurtigruten navigates through the polar regions. I think it was really inspiring, inspiring also, hopefully, for our listeners maybe taking up some ideas, you know, to for corporations in the future. And I'm um, also be looking forward to meeting you again um, at the Job Finder Summit, where you'll be um, a keynote speaker. The Job Finder Summit website is up and um, yeah, so you can look at it. The conference will be from 1st to 4th of May 2022. Hopefully an in-person meeting. <laughs> Let's cross fingers. So thank you very much again, Karin. Um, thanks everybody for listening. If you have any questions or feedback to us, send us an email, polarprediction at gmail.com. And um, yeah, in the next episode, we will talk to a helicopter pilot from the German research vessel Polarstern. And so watch out for the next episode of the iSpot and um, yeah, find more about the Polar Prediction project on polarprediction.net or on our Twitter and Instagram accounts at Polar Prediction. With this, thank you very much again, Karin, and uh, goodbye from Bremen to Norway and to the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Ice Pod, a podcast about polar science and the people. Find more information on our website, polarprediction.net, Or give us feedback. Just send us an email to polarprediction at gmail.com. You can find all the links in our show notes.